Welcome to today's uh, weekly podcast from Rethink Energy. My name is Peter White, uh, CEO and lead analyst at Rethink Energy. We're, we're here with uh, uh, the usual crew of uh, Harry Morgan, uh, Andrew Swanson, and Simon Thompson. We've got a special guest today, John Ingram. He's the CEO of uh, Focal Line Solar. Um, they're a concentrated solar power co company uh, who are setting up a factory in the Ukraine, and he's talking to us from Ukraine. Hi, John. Hello, thank you. Hi. We're going to just um, go into the, uh, the first topic that we wrote about in this issue, and then we'll, we're going to come back to John and uh, talk a bit about CSP for as long as um, we can. We think we can make it interesting. So the first story of uh, is, is, is EU planning, the uh, Fit for 55 story, covered by virtually every news media uh, on the planet as of the last few weeks, uh, mostly through leaks. It was announced only a couple of days ago. Uh, Harry, you, you want to just go through um, what you felt were the, the key points raised in it? Yeah, sure. So uh, when we're talking about the EU Fit 55, as it as it's quite clear in its title, it's, it's aiming for this 55 reduction in CO2 emissions across the EU between 1990 and 2030. We're already 24% there. Obviously, it's starting in 1990, so over the 30 years that have passed since, while the European economy has grown 60%, emissions have already fallen 24%. So all it really means is we've got this push to, to hit that other sort of 30% emissions, which which is a, a huge challenge in its own right. While we are while there are groups that are ca calling for a reduction of sort of 60, 70%, the 55% target, I think, does need to be identified as fairly ambitious, especially when you've got countries like uh, Poland, Czech Republic, even Germany actually being quite slow in terms of their climate action uh, and sort of being a bit resistant to phase out coal. What's the sort of core of the uh, the proposals in the Fit for 55 is pretty much carbon taxation and carbon pricing. Within the existing uh, European uh, ETS, the emissions trading scheme, the cap and trade system is working in a sort of linear reduction factor around 2.2% per year at the moment. And the proposal is now saying that the amount of uh, emissions credits that can be available to emitters is now going to fall at 4.4%. So it's going to get much tighter, much more quickly. Steeper, uh, steeper reduction, yeah. Much steeper reduction. And we're actually going to see a 61% reduction in that cap between 2005 and 2030. So it is it is a pretty significant drop-off. Now, do you think this is watertight and that people won't pollute more than that? The fines are so um, large that it, it's a massive disincentive. Or, or do you think um, you know it, it could still not work? So I think that is an interesting question. I think it, the accountability behind it, we haven't seen, we certainly haven't seen in the media any sort of massive fines for companies that have, uh, have failed to adhere with it. I, I think that's primarily due to the fact that it's been a, a fairly large scope. I think as it gets tighter, we'll see more and more people sort of try and find a loophole, some which will fail, some which will actually face pretty heavy fines because of it. And um, we're especially going to see that now that we're seeing other industries included within it. So. Part of the fit by uh, fit for 55 is that the maritime industry is going to become part of it um and so is the aviation sector which is something that's been sort of really negotiated over the past like, 10 15 years right and the, 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 the aviation sector is doing this on specialized fuel isn't it on saf fuel sustainable uh, fuel that still gives off co2 is that is that uh, that's pretty much everyone's strategy for the next 10 years anyway um yeah. while, while we wait for hydrogen yeah, definitely. And because of that, um, the EU will initially give them some free allowances. So they won't actually be paying for, for, the everything, yeah. for everything. They'll just be basically told a maximum amount of emissions they can have for free. 
by 2030, they're going to phase out these free allowances. So at that point, I think the use of these sustainable uh, aviation fuels will we will start to see replaced by clean technologies. I think domestic flights in particular, as we saw through the UK's transport plan this week, will start to be replaced by electric units, I think. And sea, sea transport, I think. I think they're going to be surprisingly kind of ready for this because there's there's five or six different plans because you could just throw away bunker fuel and put in ammonia in most uh, engines already. So it's just a matter of where the ammonia comes from and, and who who, who um, spends the money up front to build the infrastructure. So, so I think that this might be the trigger. If it starts in Europe, you know, you can't come to a port in Europe unless you've done this, it, it, then it will spread. It's, it's better than the carbon border tax. You can't send a um, ship from China if it can't dock in the in Europe, you know, so uh, they'll have to. That it, it will spread like wildfire. I think that one might actually work. Just John, so um, give us a feel because you you actually operate out of the Ukraine and you have a feel for how the the renewables industry there uh, is accepted or not. What what do they what 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 do they think of the uh, possibility of cutting uh, their emissions and uh, uh, to a Europe to, to level with kind of European ambition. There's two different thoughts on that, right? So there's the political thought and uh, action, and that doesn't necessarily match the political speech. And then there's, you know, the common people who are, for the most part, behind that, ready to, you know, work with that because it could be really good for the economy. But there's no way they can match the speed at which Europe is moving and going to move. They just, you know, they can't, quite get organized around that. And their economy is not really large enough to support that without some massive investment from, from Europe in general. And, and can, will Europe invest while Russia is still such a threat to the Ukraine? You know, that's, that's an interesting question because they actually have quite a lot of signs that they will. There's a lot of talk about, you know, lithium mining here as well as leather rare earth stuff. So it's a great source material. One, because it's so close to Western Europe, you know, the shipping cost will be much less and yeah. open your back door. And it's, a, for the most part, a stable country that, that you trust. You're not buying it from somebody that maybe not be a stable uh, regime. So yeah, there's there will be investment and there'll be more. And the more they stabilize their government and the more corruption they root out, its investment will just grow. I think, I think one, of, one of the interesting things with, with um, the Ukraine is how it will respond to the carbon border mechanism that um, is part of the Fit for 55 and um, how the, they'll respond to that pressure from the EU to actually reduce emissions in their industry. I think possibly given the amount of trade between the, from the Ukraine into Europe, I think that could very much accelerate uh, the rate at which decarbonisation initiatives are put into sort of the energy sector and especially in sectors like steel, aluminium, fertiliser, any sort of imports, I think those will they'll face much more pressure to actually get on with any decarbonisation if they are to continue the trade that is ongoing at the moment. You're right. And the, the interesting part about this is that they there's a big negative going on here. And infrastructurally, they haven't maintained anything since well before Soviet times. Most of the power plants uh, are very old. So in one essence, it's a great opportunity because you modernize, you might as well modernize to the cleanest that you can get. And... Uh, so there's a huge opportunity for them. They don't know how to fund that. 
they don't have the funds for that. Um, they don't even really have the right mechanisms to do that set up yet because they're, they're not long-term planning is just really not part of the game yet here. It's it just getting out of survival mode, to be honest. And so to expect them to think really long-term is a little bit too much at this moment. I think um, what's more important is what does China think of the carbon border adjustment mechanism? I mean, I think I think that the real targets are going to be those high fossil fuel using Southeast Asian nations like Indonesia, Malaysia, Vietnam, who don't have the trading weight that China has and they don't have the head start in renewables that China has, although countries like Vietnam are catching up fast and they won't be able to trade. I just think the carbon border adjustment mechanism, as I I find it hard to say, a, a, you know, a border ca carbon tax is a genius idea, and I've always supported it because it it's like a virus. It says, oh, you're 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 an African nation. You'd like to trade with with uh, Europe. You better put in solar panels, not a coal plant. Then, and it just keeps it just keeps reminding you that there's a dis huge disincentive, for it. and it reminds the government, not just the industrialists. And so they they start making policy around it. So I, I think that there's a strong there's a strong history in this in Europe when we talk, think about how um, WTO stuff is policed and how trading wars are policed and how antitrust is policed globally. They're all in Europe. American companies are weak on that. They they have legislation. They ignore it. Uh, and then Europe sues people like IBM, Microsoft, Google, and fixes their, their behavior. And that's, it's, it's, there's a long history of Europe playing with a straight bat and fixing uh, um, uh, multinationals' behavior. And then that behavior being spread throughout the rest of the world. And I think it's the same, going to be the same with the carbon border uh, mechanism. Does this present any immediate entrepreneurial opportunities, um, Harry, the, the, the EU Fit for 55? program is, is anyone who will immediately benefit i think that the people i would say would really benefit are the people trying to innovate in countries that are deemed by the eu to be laggards potentially through the climate uh, through the climate crisis um they, they've been very very keen to show that there's going to the funding is going to be directed to those that need it most and i think if you're uh, if you're trying to decarbonize in Poland, for example, I think you could be very well placed to receive a good amount of funding. Um, generally, though, I think there's, there's 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 opportunities across the board. I think not necessarily in terms of renewable energy. I think the renewable energy targets are quite weak. They're only aiming for a 40% energy from renewables by 2030. But if you look at uh, electric vehicles, uh, the, you, they basically want a 55% reduction in emissions from vehicles by 2030 and 100% by 2035. So that's pretty much in line with the most progressive of the car makers so i think that, that is just that's just set the whole car world alight they look at that number and they go i thought it's just going to be germany the netherlands norway and the uk what do you mean all of europe's going to hit 2035 oh my numbers are all wrong all my shipments to all those other countries now have to change and the speed at which i build factories has got to change my investment capex has got to change all the car makers have gone into a huddle going oh no this is a disaster except yeah. for of course tesla and a few chinese companies yeah absolutely um, i think one of the, the really positive things we've seen in the proposals is that um the eu have, have stated solidly along every major highway in the eu 
you're going to have to have a charging point every 60 kilometers and a hydrogen refueling station every 150 kilometers. So suddenly, so suddenly you've got the, you've, you've, suddenly the certainty is there that there's going to be the infrastructure. And if Biden sees that and wants to do something similar, that suddenly the pressure just is ratcheted up considerably. Um, listen, I think we, we need to talk uh, about our guest's favourite subject. I, I want to give John a chance to talk about um, focal line solar. Um, what's what's your your um, your approach to concentrated solar power, and why is it going to work, John? Right. Um, so our approach is is a little bit different than most of our competition. We looked at the market, and you know, you know, there's a lot of low hanging fruit. Our application really targets systems, customers who need 300 degrees Celsius or less. So by doing that, we were able to really wipe out large cost elements in doing CST. We're using much lower cost components. It's factory assembled, a lot of innovations like glassless receivers, um, hybridizing the system, auto washing, things like that, which, so we're able to pretty much half the cost of uh, a higher temperature system. So for ship, for you know, uh, steam, for medium temperature applications, we have very effective cost for the customer. And so that's really our approach. Right. So, but it's really targeted something like industry because you 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 know you would love that uh, for district heat, but of course places that have district heat are not suitable for CSP. They haven't been suitable for CSP, but um, we can beat the flat panel um, collectors. So I, they're quite suitable for us. Oh, so you could um, you could you could power district heat economically? Do you think? Quite well, yeah. It you know depends on the solar in, uh, insulation, but uh, in decent locations we can do one cent per kilowatt hour thermal. I think you said um, that you know it's not just the desert, and you, the Ukraine, for example, would be a, a decent location in terms of um, the, the the natural resource. Yeah, southern Ukraine is, is quite good, and we can very cost-effectively produce heat there. So we, can beat, we can beat the cost of buying gas from Russia. Let's put it this way. That's a great, great quote. Mm. <laughs> um, yeah. it, it, it won't be true of many other technologies for some time, but um, that's, that's great. I mean, the thing about it, Russia, Russia is a massive opportunity for somebody, probably uh, one of the established energy companies out of Norway, Sweden, uh, or Finland are, are going to get contracts to sell technology into Russia so that they can decarbonize, well, not just decarbonize, make more efficient their district heating because their whole lives depend on district heating. I mean, huge swathes of uh, the company, the country. Yeah. I mean, in Ukraine, to a lesser extent, half, maybe half the country does. I mean, China, China's got a huge district heat program and they're putting in more and more all the time. Every city in Ukraine is district heated. Uh, every city. Have you have you visited somewhere like Copenhagen? It's just it's, it's one of those places. I went there for a new year, and you're freezing. You walk down the street, and, and you just walk into to a uh, one of these big industrialized sort of cluster of shops, and you're immediately warm. You think, oh, that's great. Well, I wonder where that's coming from. And it's a massive, almost almost. Sort of statewide district heat program, and none of it, all of it, is um, uh, renewable energy. No, almost none of it is. Uh, it's about ninety percent renewable energy, and they're they're trying to sell their ideas to Russia and uh, what have you. Um, so, so maybe you could get into that business. 
Uh, certainly we're open for it. And we have some offers for, for example, hot water here because they shut off the hot water system in the summer for maintenance. So four to five months of the year, people were without hot water and we can very economically produce that. What, what do you use as a, a heat transfer fluid? We use oil, uh, but it's a uh, biodegradable food grade oil. So we're not using synthetics, which is a big cost saver. So it's, it's about well, like use cooking oil. oil. No, you wouldn't use. <laughs> no, that, that has other beneficial purposes. No. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, they make, they make sap out of that. Yeah. So that's what, so you don't use molten salt, or, or, which is. No, that's, that's one of huge cost savers because, you know, molten salt now all of a sudden you, have to work at high temperatures to get the efficiency out of it. You have to use very exotic and expensive materials to make that work. So we stick with aluminum and carbon steel and all that's possible as long as you stay below that 300 number. It, it, it's an enabler for... Because molten salt is, is for the um, is, is more for those sort of power towers, towers. Power yeah. towers and it's right. from 200 degrees to 565 so everything has to be sort of more durable and you're doing parabolic um, troughs and that's right the parabolic yeah. trough yeah it's the tried and true technology the the main issue with it today is that nobody's done it really cost effectively i think i i asked you when we spoke before like um what's the advantage of one type of csp over another and actually you said that we don't really know yet and we don't know if they'll all develop their own little niche because there there's been little enough sort of mass investment into it that it hasn't been decided well, that's right and I, it isn't shaken out if you want to put it that way yet. So for example, let's say that you want to do uh, desalination. Our technology is absolutely perfect for very large scale desalination. You could cover hundreds of hectares to do gigantic desalination plants. And in fact, we have uh, talks going now for six desalination plants throughout Africa and, and they would be on the large scale on the order of 100 hectares each. So that, that's fine for this technology, the temperature's right. But if someone wanted to do solar-driven concrete, cement production, let's say, it, it doesn't work, right? You need that 6700C, really very high temperature. You, 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 need, you need 1450. I mean, you, you really Well, it, it, <laughs> right. So it's not going to work with us, but a power tower can get there. I mean, the, 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 the uh, Department of Energy in the States has have got, got this idea that, that there's going to be a next generation, uh, I think they call it a third generation, uh, transfer fluid, which isn't the fluid at all, it's some kind of thermal right. powder, which, which can go up to about 1,450. I mean, they are actually targeting at, at in, in, What do you think of that? Do you think that's going to work? Do you think it's just a long way off? If it's a long way off? No, I don't think it's a long way off, actually. Um, and I believe they will be able to develop it, but it always comes down to, is it practical for most applications? And the answer is probably going to be obviously no. Um, it's so specialized and so targeted, it's going to be limited to niche applications, in my opinion. Because if you, if you cement is a great area to apply this to, but the trouble is sure. those kilns need to run for at least three, four weeks nonstop. Right. Uh, 24 hours a day. Uh, I mean, as long as possible, basically. And um, I just, you know, it's is CSP that reliable? I mean, it, it, again, it does depend on how you store the, the thermal um, and what it costs to store thermal. And your so. location. So some locations will lend themselves to making that work very easy. 
you know, build it outside well, Las Vegas. Would it be very cheap if they do that, do you think? Do you think that would be a very cheap way of doing it rather than hydrogen? No, no it won't be cheap. Oh, you mean compared to hydrogen? <laughs> well, then that necessarily needs to ask the question where you're getting that hydrogen. <laughs> okay. Okay. And now at what point in time? Because, I mean, we're looking at the, the likely price of hydrogen as a daily issue. I mean, it's a really the most important issue in energy, you think. And we can see cost curves getting more and more aggressive every day as more and more people entering larger volumes with larger volumes of money. Um, but, you know, it's really difficult to see beyond 2025 that the price may well come down. But who's, who wins? It's, it's really hard to tell. Okay. Okay. Moving on, we're going to go to, uh, to our uh, next uh, story to discuss. I think Harry, you wanted to talk about PJM and the, and the uh, minimum offer price rule. Uh, I mean, I don't think there's a, a ton to say about that. I think um, I think we always thought that a Biden administration would somehow stop the insanity of charging, of make forcing renewables to bid in the American ISOs at prices which meant they couldn't get any other capacity market. We thought that would not get through a Biden administration. And obviously, FERC hasn't changed entirely, and it's only two of each side at the moment. But it, it just it's, it looks like they've come up with a, a formula, which is basically pretending that the whole thing was invented to, um, to stop... Uh, some kind of arbitrage play by um, by utilities and the, the, the states who were, who were setting up things like that said you only get subsidised if you can bid this on the PJM, I'm, and I'm not sure anyone's proved that that ever went on. So I um, have you got any view on that, John? I mean, you you know the the American power markets, I suppose. I don't have any particular insight on that one, other than to say none of that would surprise me and it's highly unlikely you ever would prove it. You know, they still have a hard time proving the last manipulations, you know, from the last couple of decades, California debacle and, and so forth. So <laughs> good luck to prove it. So all they do is step back from it and say, oh, if, if, if you've got, if, if it's not conditional on, on a particular price bid in the market, i.e. you deliberately driving down the cost of the market supplying your electricity, then um, then it's you're allowed to support them with uh, subsidies, which basically means the whole thing's off. And it'll be done on a case-by-case basis if, if someone gets caught doing it. Now, New York's copied this rule, and they're going to copy this solution, and then it's going to go away. Uh, I, think, I think this is just one of those things. A new technology comes in, let's legislate against it. Um, oh, we've legislated against it, they've caught us, oh, they've undone the legislation. Okay. Yeah. You know, and that, and that, that's, that's how the world works. So, uh, that's desperate try to stay alive. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Whereas the best way of trying to stay alive is embrace the new technology. Eat your own children, as we say in the business. Right. And the old guard CEOs embrace new stuff every day, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's almost irony. Um, yeah, yeah, that's, uh, that's certainly euphemism. All right. Okay. So, and then I think the next piece we want to look at today was geothermal. Now, none of us are experts in this, Andres. Um, so, we're not sure if you knew what you're talking about in this story or not, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, we've seen two or three new geothermal companies. This was a different take. 
coming out of China. To, to tell us about it. Well, I should first describe what an ordinary geothermal is, just to just to be clear on what the new stuff is. So I think in the old, in, in traditional geothermal, what you're dealing with is a naturally occurring water resource underground. So it's 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 impermeable rock. Otherwise, you know, that's why it can contain the water, but it doesn't evaporate or get heated and, and, and lost to the atmosphere gradually because it's capped by impermeable rock. So that's quite a rare combination, and that's why geothermal is quite limited. I think. And normally US, limited to volcanic regions. Yeah, I think in the US it's like in Nevada, uh, Utah, California, probably that sort of region. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's a lot of countries, even Colombia, which I wrote about the other week, that have. It's almost like all of them have like one token geothermal plant, and that's no, that. Iceland. Iceland has lots, and Canada has a few. Yeah, yeah. but um, this is a type of geothermal, uh, enhanced geothermal, which has been looked at now in China as well. Uh, you know, it's the latest place to look at it, where you can obviously, if you drill down far enough, it gets hot. So if it becomes economic to drill down three or four kilometers, up to ten if you want to do it in a bad location you will reach these a region of hot, dry rocks. So there's no water there to, do, to work with, but it's you've got the temperature of um, at least 150 degrees, maybe 300. And, and so what you do is you can, once you've drilled your, your shaft of, of, of several kilometers, you can pipe down a whole, a whole load of cool water at very high pressures. And it, if, because it's high pressure enough, it will burst its way through all these cracks in the rock. And if you've done your planning and your surveying right, it will also so that will form a reservoir, and it will also uh, compress the rock around it so that it won't be leaking out everywhere. And you'll eventually have sort of a reasonably sized reservoir of water now to draw on. That's very high pressure; it's very high temperature, and you can just cycle it through. And I think so this is not like fervo energy or evil, which is basically using fracking techniques hmm. to go down, but also to go horizontal for a couple of kilometers and then back up again to create a closed loop. You're actually there, still using a reservoir. Well, I think there is some horizontal, well, some horizontal aspect. I don't know how, how I don't know how horizontal the Fovo and the Aevor ones are. They're, they're two kilometers down, hmm. two kilometers across, and two kilometers back up again, and they, they create a cycle. Uh, uh, what do you call it? ISO? Hmm. Uh, yeah, uh, an ISO. So, so want, it basically becomes a heat pump. Yeah. You want the hot water to rise and the cool water to think um, naturally. But that's what it tends to do, I think, once you get it rolling. I mean, it's a bit more complicated than that, but you can see how there's like a natural heat pump sort of tendency. And I, I, that was mentioned in, in, in China as well, that, that they've done some research on this. Uh, I never actually said what the story was. It's um, it's a Matuying district in Tangshan City in Hebei province, which is the province that surrounds uh, China, uh, Beijing. So that's a, that's a region that has good ge geology and lots of demand and maybe not the most land availability for solar or wind. So they'll benefit if they can do this. And do you think that China will will crack on with this? I mean, they've been very slow with geothermal so far. I think there's something like they've only got 26 megawatts installed in the country. Um, I know that from their 13, I think it was their 13 five-year plan, they, they had quite ambitious plans for it, which clearly haven't come to pass. Mm. Um, from what you were reading this week, does it seem like this could be, could be the first step towards an actual geothermal industry in the country? We don't really know if China is going to decide to heavily fund it. We don't really know. I, I mean, I, I was reading people claiming that EGS, enhanced geothermal systems, were cost effective. But, I mean, they would, wouldn't they? So 
maybe they will do this new thing on a large scale. I did see that they've been doing quite a lot of research, not just in Tangshang, but in a few other places. I think I closed out my article with some um, lists of numbers that were quite boring to read, but um, they've done the Gonghei Basin, in, um, and that's in Qinghai, which is quite a while away. They've done some other place. No, just Gonghei, I think. So, I don't know. But you did talk about there being the possibility of sort of shockwaves. Oh, yes. Yeah, I forgot about that. I mean, I, I don't see that in the two-kilometre one. Well, I do, uh, but once it's drilled, it's drilled, and that's it finished. It doesn't. There aren't any shockwaves afterwards. They obviously have access to fracking drilling, so it's exactly the same drills that frac frackers use. And um, so, so they're already well-developed and relatively cheap. And China has a... Has a a buoyant sort of starting fracking industry right now, mostly for natural gas. I think if you do your surveying properly, you should be okay. But what's happened in a couple of cases is that they injected water into a into a fault zone, and that caused earthquakes. Um, the biggest one, so they cancelled a project in Basel at the German town of Basel, which was actually destroyed by an earthquake in 1356, incidentally. But um, because they were causing earthquakes and they hadn't right. done their surveying ahead of time. They hadn't planned for it. They also caused one in, in Pohang in Korea. So they had to cancel that and the energy ministry apologized to the nation afterwards. So, um, but I think that was just because they were a bit complacent and you can just, just don't do it in, in the wrong place. Maybe that rules out certain locations, but China will have places that aren't dangerous, I think. Uh, so I, I think this is a bit like um, how we feel about electrolysis that, Electrolysis is going to get cheaper and cheaper and cheaper, and that one of the five or six or seven projects are going to find their way to success and drop the price, and hydrogen will happen. I think it's the same with geothermal. Multiple investments, they won't, they'll take time to bubble under and come to the surface and prove their case, maybe three, four, five years, and then one of them will, will come through at the right price. And then there'll be a, a global proliferation, which will, which probably won't have a massive impact prior, much prior to 2030, but will have an impact in plenty of time 